All right. Well, we are in First Peter chapter four. We're continuing on in our series in First Peter. And just to catch us up on where we are, because we took a, a week long break from First Peter last week, Peter is writing to people who are suffering. People's writing to people who are about to suffer. People's, uh, Peter is writing to people who are destined to suffer, as he already indicates in this letter. But here's a spoiler. So too are all of us. All of us are going to face suffering in this world. Now, Peter's original audience were believers who were scattered about. They were persecuted. They were facing the prospect of imprisonment, perhaps even death, even martyrdom. All of which was seen here as unjust suffering for their faith. But what Peter's really writing to here is just the condition uh, that we live in for all of us who are sojourners. All of us who live in this world but belong to the world to come. In fact, Peter addresses this letter to the elect exiles, and that is all of us who belong to God. We, we reside on this side of eternity here as those who have an immense hope in Christ. Our treasure is stored up in Christ, and we have, as Peter already writes in chapter 1, this immeasurable inheritance that words can't even describe. We see that we're the recipients of eternal life by Christ's own blood and that we've been born again to this living hope. This living hope, not a hope just for the future, but a living hope. Yet, on this side of eternity, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world under the curse of sin. We live in a world full of diseases and perils and Also, we live in a world that if we live out our living hope in this world, we might face the backlash of this world gone mad. We might face the backlash because our living hope is at odds with the hopelessness of this world. Peter's address in chapter 2 how we're, we're living in an unbelieving society. We're living under pagan governments. We're working for unbelieving bosses. Peter's already covered all of that. But how we face the trials of this life, how we face the sufferings of this world, how we face these trials is absolutely critical to how we experience our joy, our spiritual growth, and our sanctification. The fact is, uh, how many of you have ever suffered in this life? That should be basically all of us in one way or another, so too all of us can be equipped for it. We can be ready for it. We can be unafraid. Most important of all, all of us can be able to see God at work through the trials of our lives. The Word, in fact, gives us the tools right here. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, First Peter chapter 4. If you haven't already, turn there with me. And let's pray. Lord, I just pray that You would speak to us through your word, that you would convict us of areas in our lives in which we can conform into the plan that you have for us, and that we would humbly come before your word and worship you as we learn. Ask this all in the name of Christ our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen. So we start out in chapter 4, in verse 1 and 2 we read, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter is hearkening back to that ultimate example that he just gave us at the end of chapter 3, that example of Christ who suffered unjustly. 
So Peter's talking about how we may suffer unjustly for ourselves. We actually may suffer for doing that which is righteous, but Peter gives us that ultimate example of he who suffered for righteousness sake. Now, chapter three says, if you, if you just turn back a, a few verses that Christ suffered once for sins in verse 18, he being the ultimate example. In fact, not only was he suffering for being righteous, he was the just one. He was the just one who was suffering for the sake of the unjust. He was the righteous who suffered for the unrighteous. So not only did did Jesus bear our sins on himself and do something that he had no uh, deserving of suffering whatsoever, but he did it on account of people who did not deserve grace whatsoever. But that's what grace is. So Jesus, once again, is that ultimate example of suffering for righteousness' sake. But he's also the ultimate example of vindication. See, Jesus was vindicated, and Peter talks about it right here, of how after being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the Spirit. After he was crucified in the flesh, he's made alive in the Spirit, and he is able to go to the fallen angels and declare victory over them, to proclaim, I won. The ultimate spiking of the football, completely vindicated. But not only was he able to declare to his enemies that victory had been achieved, that they had been defeated, but he also was resurrected bodily. He was not just made alive in the Spirit, but three days later we know that he was made alive as well in the flesh and resurrected again. And beyond that, he was ultimately vindicated as we see in verse 22 Uh, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's ultimate vindication. So Peter's saying, arm yourselves with this, with the same way of thinking, this same mindset. We also need to adopt that same pattern of thinking, that same courage, that same endurance, The same way of thinking where we can say when we go through the trials of this life, when we face suffering, we can say without a shadow of a doubt, God will vindicate me. God is the vindicator. Though I may suffer on this earth, God will vindicate me. Though I may be mocked for my faith in him, God will vindicate me. Though I may be reviled and made fun of and sneered at, though I may face struggling in this world, God will vindicate me. Though I may face the consequences of a world that's cursed by sin, ultimately God will vindicate me and bring me safely into His presence. See, it's so in our nature to arm ourselves with a pattern of thinking that's not like that, but what must I do to vindicate myself? You know, whether we are facing suffering or reviling of others or whether we feel like we're at odds with this world gone mad, what can I do to vindicate myself? And we know that the ultimate vindication, the one that we long for, is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So arm ourselves with this same way of thinking. God will vindicate me. But beyond the good news of, of future vindication, beyond the news of being brought into his presence and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, we have some good news for the here and now. And it says right here in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
You see, when, when we suffer for righteousness, we can see that, first of all, we've passed a major test. When we suffer for the sake of being righteous, because basically what Peter is saying right here is, if you are truly willing to suffer for Christ, if that is your mindset that you are able to endure suffering for Him, then you are already in a state of spiritual discipline where you also can and will resist sin. You see, if you suffer for Christ, it it completely changes your outlook on life. Totally. Simply put, if we were to put this sermon on a bumper sticker, put this passage on a bumper sticker, it would be what I, I titled it. Suffering is sanctifying. All right? Suffering is sanctifying. And why is that? Well, it's because when you are willing to endure suffering for righteousness' sake, when you suffer for your Lord, you've made a conscious decision. You have made a clean break from sin. You've made a break from all of those comforts and all of those self-indulgences, and you say, you know, whatever it is that sin used to offer to me, it just doesn't matter to me anymore. That's not what it's about. You say to sin, sin, you are dead to me. That's because, as it says here, you're no longer living for the flesh. If you were living for the flesh, then no, you wouldn't endure suffering because suffering is completely contradictory to what makes the flesh happy. In the same way that the world, the, the word says that we are to be in the world, world, but not of the world, you are in the flesh, but you're not of the flesh. You're in the flesh in that you, you have skin and bones and muscle. You have a, a body here on this earth, but you are not of the flesh. He who has suffered in the flesh, you've reached a level of spiritual maturity that all of us ought to be growing into. We learned in chapter 3 that if we suffer for Christ, we're actually blessed. And that seems so paradoxical, but here is a major reason why. If we endure suffering for Christ, it's proof, it's affirmation. It's something that we can look to that we have a certain qualitative state of spiritual maturity where we are far closer to God than to anything else in this world. That's right. If you suffer for your Lord, you can look to that and and, and say, wow, I am far closer and tied to Him than I am to anything else in this world. You've passed a major test. Now, I knew a, a high school basketball coach in my area who never coached me, and I'm quite thankful for that, and I'll explain why. He was notorious in that the first weeks of practice, this coach would take all of the players who had gone out for the team, and he would condition them and run them so incredibly hard that all of them would throw up, like they had mops on hand and everything. He'd run them so hard that all of them would throw up, and more than half of them would quit the team, just because it was so intense. And I I used to hear that and think, I'm so glad my coach is not like that. But there was a method to his madness. First of all, by putting them through that test, he could see who was truly committed. He could see who wasn't just going out for popularity or for their friend's sake or anything like that, but who was truly committed to the team and committed to win. But also, second, for those who passed the test, he knew that they had a certain level of toughness and discipline that if they could go through that, they could handle any level of adversity that would come throughout the regular season in any game. Now, in a much greater way, if you are willing to suffer for your Lord and Savior in the flesh, then 
obviously the pleasures of the flesh are no longer your chief aim in life. Christ is your chief aim in life. And if the pleasures of your flesh are not your chief aim in life, and Christ is your chief aim in life, then you no longer live for human passions. You live, as it says right here at the end of verse 2, for the will of God. Now, essentially, there are two kinds of, of professing Christians, two kinds of people who, at least by their lips, claim Christ. There are those who live for human passions and those who live for the will of God. Now, that first type of professing Christian who, who claims Christ with their lips, they're Christians of convenience. They claim Christ when it's convenient to do so. But when the rubber meets the road, when the tests come, when the trials come, their, their true inner driving mechanism becomes apparent. What really motivates them, what really is their aim in life, what that which is inward that nobody else can see becomes apparent. And those are human passions. Look, if someone's primarily driven by the pursuit of human passions, then of course they're not going to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. They'll tap out. They won't endure it because suffering is, as I said earlier, diametrically opposite to human passion. You have human passion over here, and you have suffering over here, and ne'er the twain shall meet. They have nothing in common with each other. Now, an obvious example of this is times of overt persecution. Times like when Peter is writing to his original audience. And when there's overt persecution, whether by the government or extremist groups or society or anything like that, the Christian of convenience, those living for human passions, will not endure. They're going to be instantly sorted out. Instantly sorted out. Why? Because they're not going to claim Christ if doing so puts their true aim in life at risk. If their true aim in life is their own ambitions, their own comfort, perhaps even their own safety, or even their own survival, when claiming our Lord and serving Him comes at odds with those human passions, yeah, that convenient Christian is, is going to tap out. Or perhaps, you know, there's cases of suffering in which the endurer of the suffering has no choice. You know, we think of health issues or adversity that we face in life. Some of the sufferings that people in this very church family are going through right now. Look, a Christian of, of convenience is not going to worship God through those trials. No, a Christian who is living for human passions is not going to see such suffering through God's eyes or his perspective. They're not going to glorify God through that storm. No, they're going to doubt him. They're going to run to worldly comforts as a salve for that suffering in those trials. And here's the connection that Peter is making here, this very important connection. If a person is not willing or able to endure suffering for Christ, then they also will not have the discipline to withstand temptation for Christ. I mean, that's why Peter connects the two of those right here in this passage, suffering and sanctification. Because if you're just living for your own passions, then not only will you tap out when suffering comes, but you'll also jump right in 
to whatever sin of human passion suits your fancy. But then we have that second kind. We have the committed Christian. Not the Christian of of convenience. Not the convenient Christian. This is the one, the true Christian who lives for the will of God. This Christian is able, willing to, and by the grace of God, it's only by His grace that we're able to suffer in the flesh. They're able to suffer in the flesh because the passions of the flesh are of little regard to this believer. No, Christ is everything. This Christian will claim Christ no matter the cost. This Christian will remain faithful and worship Him no matter what troubles of the world befall this believer. In fact, when when the sufferings of this world increase, the Christian leans into God all the more. When the sufferings of this world increase, this Christian just all the more realizes that I don't belong to this world. I belong to the world that's yet to come. When the sufferings of this world increase, our affections for this world wane all the more and we lean on God all the more. We draw closer to Him in suffering. And that's because this Christian's aim in life is the will of God. So in verse 1, Peter, Peter's not saying that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin in that this person is completely sinless, in that their sanctification is complete. But instead he's saying, if a person is so deeply abiding in Christ that they're willing to suffer for him, then this person has also turned away from sin. If, a per, uh, if this person possesses the godly discipline to persist in suffering, then they also possess the godly discipline to resist in sin. And this is just evidence that the worldly pleasures that once entangled or enticed this person are now of no interest to them. They've put them off to never return to them. And so they live the rest of their lives in the flesh, again, as people with with bodies and skin and, and bones and, and eyes and organs, but not for the flesh. As it says here, they live for the will of God. They're ready and able to do anything to glorify Him, whether it be enduring suffering or rejecting sin. Glorifying Him is their chief aim in life. So, again, if you wanted to distill all of this just to something you could fit on a bumper sticker, suffering is sanctifying. What we read in verse 3 right here is, for the time that is past, for do, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. For the time that it, that is past suffices for doing those things. The time is past to live like the world, is what Peter's saying. It's over. It's over. Those days are behind you for living like people who are not in the covenant. You are in the covenant. You belong to God. You walk in the light now. You had your your whole prior life to, to do all of those things, to sow your wild oats, but that's your old life. And the old you is dead. And no matter how much those things enticed you back then, you shouldn't miss it one bit either because when Christ found you, He made you realize how empty and dead that dead-end way of living really was. 
So this description right here of doing what the Gentiles want to do is obviously describing the the behaviors and the sins of unbelievers in the first century when Peter is writing this. But notice, if you read this list, it perfectly describes the behaviors of unbelievers today. As it says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You know, that kind of just sounds like a quiet weekend in a college town, if you ask me. I mean, human nature has not changed one bit in 2,000 years, has it? But the time for you, believer, to do such things is past. You live in the flesh. You have flesh. You live in the flesh, but you are not for the flesh. You live for the will of God. That being said, following the will of God, it it may be simple, but it is not easy. Following the will of God by resisting sin can sometimes invite suffering all of its own. That's right, by putting off sin and saying that I want no part of that, sometimes that very action of obedience by resisting sin can be the very thing that invites in suffering, as we read in verse 4. I mean, yes, God blesses those who walk in His path and avoid sin. It's healthier, it's wiser, it's a more blessed life to avoid sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry and all the like. But sometimes... By avoiding those things, we actually invite the backlash of the world. As verse 4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. If you live out your living hope, If you live out your Christian testimony, and in this case, if you live it out by what you resist, if you live it out by what you walk away from, if you live it out by resisting sin, then unbelievers will take notice. Have you guys experienced that in your life when you no longer do the things you used to do? Or maybe there's things that you just simply avoid no matter how enticing they may be because that's not what God has called us to do, and people take notice of that. Have you guys seen that in from your coworkers or maybe people you went to school with or something like that? Unbelievers will take notice of the things that we do not engage in. However, when when they take notice, they may not always say, "Oh, you know what? That's so neat that you don't do all the wild and crazy stuff that we do." Now, sometimes when when you say, "No thanks, I'm not going to participate in that because it's it's sin," it actually surprises them. And not just surprises them in saying, oh, that's so wonderful, but they malign you for it. Most of us will never or have not suffered overt persecution for our faith. The kind of suffering that is happening and that Peter will actually experience himself as he gives his life as a martyr at the end of his life. Most of us have never experienced that kind of suffering, but most of us have experienced this kind of suffering that's talked about in verse 4. If you want to call it suffering, most of us have in some way, shape, or form experienced that to some degree. You know, in the first century in Roman society, the Roman unbelievers hated Christians for not engaging in all of these things. The Roman unbelieving pagan world uh, looked in with not just scorn and mockery, but absolute hatred for Christians who didn't engage in uh, Roman civic ceremonies or in idolatrous conventions or other immoral cultural customs of Roman society. 
And what did they say? They even claimed that Christians were subversive, that they were disloyal, that they were unpatriotic, that they were even evil for not engaging in that pagan idolatry, that they were enemies of the state of Rome, the worst kind of people. Now, today we may not face that level of being ostracized, but when we live a godly life, we very well may be ostracized socially. We may be teased. We may be alienated from the cool kids' lunch table, if you will. We may be even alienated from people who used to claim to be our friends. You know, it's of a different degree. It's a lesser degree than than overt persecution. It's not the same as being tortured or killed, but it hurts nonetheless. It tests us. It's a trial all of its own. But Peter reassures us here, and this is, again, he just, every time he gives a reassurance here, every time the Lord gives a reassurance through his word, through Peter, it just is of the highest regard. Because Peter says that, that we're not accountable to them. The maligners, the, the mockers, the scoffers, that's not the audience we serve. That should be of no regard to us because we are accountable to an audience of one. An audience of one. But so too is everybody else. So too even are the mockers and the scoffers and those who revile us for our loyalty to Him. Everyone is accountable to that audience of one, whether they acknowledge Him or not. As it says right here in verse 5, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Look, everyone's going to judge our actions. Everyone's going to judge everything about us, what we do and what we don't do. Perhaps, as we read earlier in First Peter, our, our good deeds will put them to silence. It'll put them to shame. Or perhaps they're surprised when we don't engage in debauchery, so they're not silent. They viciously malign us. It's not right to do, but it's just human nature to judge others. You will walk through this life constantly being under the judgment of what other people think about what you say, what you do, and how you look when you're doing it. But no matter how much we get judged in our flesh, there is only one capital J, judge. There's only ultimately one kind of vindication that matters. Verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, this is one of those verses that when you first read it, it's a little quizzical. You might furrow your brow and be like, what in the world? For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. No, this isn't saying that you should go evangelize in the cemetery, okay? We got our outreach uh, ministry up and running in this church, and that's not their plan to go to preach to those who are dead. No, Peter is saying this is why the gospel has gone forth, even for those who believed in the gospel, yet by the time Peter is writing this, are dead. Why? Who's he talking about? He's talking about people who are judged in the flesh as human beings. 
They were judged by their mocking peers. They were judged by a civil magistrate. They were judged by an evil emperor. In fact, the emperor at the time that Peter is writing this, as we already covered, is one of the most evil men who has ever existed, and that's the emperor Nero. These people who are now dead, as Peter is writing this, were, when they were alive, subjected to unjust treatment, perhaps even put to death for their faith in Christ. Peter's writing to an audience that would have known firsthand, likely, a number of martyrs. Maybe even their own family members, close friends, people in their very church congregations. But because the gospel was preached to them and they believed, now, after death, they live in the Spirit the way God does. They live in the Spirit the way God does. They were judged in their flesh, by Roman citizens and Roman civil magistrates who might have mocked them and thought they were crazy, who might have thought that they were subversive to the state, who might have thought that they were horrible people and put them on trial for doing so, and they were tortured and put to death. But now, after death, they live in the Spirit the way God does. They've been brought into a more glorious life than we could ever even imagine on this side of eternity. Again, this is flowing right from chapter 3 where we see that Christ suffered unjustly. He was put to death, but he was made alive in the Spirit. And here it's saying, we might suffer. We might even be put to death as Peter himself was, as His audience had already seen, and perhaps many of the people who originally read this letter were put to death for their faith. We might be, but we will be made alive in the Spirit. Chapter 3, we see that Christ declared victory over His enemies. And in the same way, when we stand before God, we will have that ultimate vindication because we are justified. We won't be condemned by the only capital J judge will be embraced by him. The believers that Peter is writing to in the time of Nero, you know, Peter hasn't comforted them here by, by saying that they're not going to suffer. He hasn't comforted them by just spinning them a yarn that might soothe them and might lull them to sleep and help, help them just sleep better at night or anything like that. No, he's telling them that, yeah, you will suffer. Don't be surprised by it. He's telling them the truth. But what a reassurance he's giving here. What a reassurance that we should be willing to suffer, even unafraid to suffer, because even the utmost suffering that leads to death, all it can do is bring us into eternal life. That's right. The worst that a person can possibly do to you will just bring you into eternal everlasting life in glory with our Creator. In fact, that's the ultimate final step of our bumper sticker. Suffering is sanctifying. Now, if we face the greatest degree of suffering, which is death, martyrdom, it results in our final and ultimate sanctification where we are sinless and holy forever. Now, that's heavy stuff. That's that's heavy stuff. I always think when, when we come to passages like this, we're, we're confronted with the heaviest of, of questions. 
concerning our faith and where we're, we are with the Lord. We're, we're confronted with questions like, personally, for me, not just in a, in a vague general sense, but personally for all of us, we ask ourselves the question, is Jesus worth dying for? We, we sang living for Jesus. Well, if he's worth living for, then he's worth dying for. And if he's worth dying for, then he's worth living for. Is he worth dying for? If he's worth living for, he's worth dying for. And if he's worth dying for, he's worth living for. And if he is worth dying for, for you, for us, then he's worth enduring any temptation, any temporal suffering in this life. There's nothing that we wouldn't go through for him. So whatever that trial may may be, whatever suffering you're facing, the fact of the matter is, if you're not in a trial right now, you either just got out of one or you're about to go into one. So whatever that trial may be, how might God be bringing you closer to him? How might God be taking away all those vain things, those comforts of this earth that you've leaned so heavily on, taking all of them away and refining you so you lean solely on Him? What might He be teaching you? Ultimately, we remember that God will vindicate you, but He's also refining you. He's sanctifying you completely because we serve a holy and faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the comfort that you give us in your word, that even in the midst of suffering, we know that you are present. You are working. Lord, we know that as we give all of ourselves to you, I pray that we would be found faithful, that we would be the type of believers that you are refining to where we are solely without reservation given completely unto you. And Lord, if it's your will that we live uh, by the world standards, long lives and prosperous lives so that we can proclaim you through uh, the, our longevity and prosperity that you give us, then Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful in that and not have any idols in the things of this world. But Lord, if it's your will for some of us that we may even be called to suffer for your sake. I pray that we would be faithful in proclaiming you in the suffering for your glory. And that's what we ask it for, for your glory. In the name of our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen.